How's everyone doing? If you haven't met me or if um, you need a reminder, my name's Brian. I'm one of the senior staff with the EU and I uh, work with the EU STEM region. So I'm so glad that you're here. And let me just add my warmest welcome to you, especially if you are new or if you're visiting, if you've only come a couple of times, then um, you're, I'm so glad that you're here and we love having visitors with us in the EU at anything that we do, Bible seminars included. And so, um, yeah, I really hope that you have a great time today. Um, we're returning to the book of Exodus. And if you were here earlier in the semester, you know that we've been going uh, that we spent a bit of time. Rowan took us through Exodus chapters 1 to 10 or so. And, um, and, and then we had a bit of a break. And now we're returning to it. The reason why we're sort of coming back to Exodus again and again is because the EU's habit for many years now has been to, have, to choose one book that is going to become the book of the year. And we call it the book of the year because we want to spend about half of our teaching time uh, in our Bible seminars uh, going deep into one part, significant part of the Bible where we can really dig deep, th uh, think about Jesus and, uh, and about God's word in that particular way. And so I think that's, that's a helpful habit that we've had and, that, and ex this year Exodus is our book of the year. So I, I hope you have a Bible in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, then uh, you can get it on your phone right now if, you w if you'd like, but uh, we'd love to give you a Bible as well. If you're just investigating Christianity, maybe you don't own a Bible yet, we'd love to give you one for free. That's on us as a gift. And if you'd like that, then, then um, come and see me afterwards. I'd love to make sure that there's one in your hands. And I think it, for, the, for this series, just for, from now until the end of the semester, actually probably would be helpful. If you're not in the habit of bringing in your paper Bible, then that might be helpful. I just find that with Old Testament narratives, they tend to be long sections, and uh, it's hard to see context if you only got a little screen. So that's, that's my recommendation. Let's get started. On the 25th of April, 1915, Allied forces landed at Gallipoli, hoping to strike at the Ottomans to knock them out of the great conflict that was the First World War. Now, what they didn't expect was the fierce resistance that they met. You might know this story that resulted in a long, drawn-out battle in which over 56,000 Allied soldiers lost their lives. It wasn't even a victory for the Allied forces in the end. They had to retreat. And yet, Australians continue year by year to celebrate the 25th of April as Anzac Day to honour the sacrifice made by so many. And we do it through the symbolism that of a service that is usually conducted on that day. A normal service would include the laying of wreaths that symbolize the honoring of the dead. Often uh, we repeat the same lines again and again of this poem. They shall not grow old as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning we shall remember them. A military bugle plays the last post. It's a trumpet call that signifies the end of the day's activities for the soldiers, but it's symbolic of the rest of the fallen. And there's a minute silence for respect, for remembrance, and for reflection. And we sing the national anthem because it's these moments that shape our collective identity as a nation. 
Our nation is formed by the solemn moments of our history and our enduring memory of them. Well, today we're talking about the Jewish Passover. And the Jewish Passover is like Anzac Day on steroids. It's a moment of remembrance. It's celebrated every year. It involves sacrifice, but not a sacrifice that leads to dramatic defeat. It's a sacrifice that leads to dramatic victory. It's a moment in which the same story is retold year after year, generation after generation, for one of the most defining moments of the nation of Israel and for the people of that nation. It's an expression of national identity that forms who they are. And it's full of symbols that are designed to remind people of the significance of their history that has formed them. So if you do have a Bible in front of you, that's going to be super helpful. Uh, the section that we're tackling actually is from the beginning of chapter 11 all the way halfway through chapter 13. And so that's what we're going to be uh, looking at today um, if you would like to have a scan over it for yourself. Now, if you have a look at what's going on in that whole section, what's fascinating to me is that it's a gripping story but for a story with, which has such an interesting narrative, it's got a lot of talking going on. There's a lot of dialogue. The Lord speaks to Moses. Moses speaks to the people. The Lord speaks to Moses. Moses speaks to the people. And uh, even though the narrative is all about God's 10th and final plague on the Egyptians, there's a whole lot of instruction that's going on. And the instruction is interwoven into the telling of the story. And the instruction's all about how to remember this moment. And so it seems, it can almost seem very redundant, repetitive to keep going on about the instructions for the Passover as you read through. But in the Bible, we must not read repetition as sloppy writing. It's actually the opposite. Repetition and length are the things that we must pay attention to. They're designed to make us slow down and really listen, really hammer home the things that we need to notice and take away. And so this passage is actually about how to remember this particular moment in history. It's the moment that defined the nation of Israel. And so we're going to look at it under three headings. If you're taking notes, here's the headings to write down. First, the history of the Passover. Second, the memorial of the Passover. And thirdly, the ultimate meaning of the Passover. The history, the memorial, the ultimate meaning. So first, the history. The Passover was the turning point in the showdown between God and Pharaoh. The story of the Exodus, you might remember, starts with the story of Israel, and they've gone from a position of privilege to a position of servitude, of slavery in the, uh, in the land of Israel. Uh, the Pharaoh has enslaved the Egyptians, and, uh, and refuses to uh, let go of them. And in their oppression, the people cry out to God, and God raises up the man Moses to lead his people out of slavery. But king, the king of Egypt, he doesn't want to let them go. He's stubbornly hard-hearted, we're told, and he refuses to let them go. And so there's a showdown between the one true living God and the king of Egypt, Pharaoh. And God demonstrates his power in this showdown through these nine plagues, as we call them, disasters upon the land of Egypt. And finally, we're getting to this point where we're, uh, we're at the 10th plague. And so if you, if you have got your Bible, have a look at chapter 11, verses 4 to 8. This is what it says. Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt 
Every firstborn son in Egypt will die from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing in Egypt, worse than there ever has been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark against any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, go you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will leave. And then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. After nine demonstrations of God's power, after nine warnings of the danger and the consequences of ignoring God, after uh, nine stubborn refusals and nine acts of judgment against Egypt, uh, the people, the crops and the livestock, Pharaoh has still set himself against the one true living God. And so God says that this final and harshest judgment will come upon Israel, uh, upon Egypt sorry, and will pry open Pharaoh's tight-fisted hand to let the Israelites go. It's here, actually, if we've been paying attention, that God is bringing a whole lot of threads in the book of Exodus to their climax. You see, in chapter 1, Pharaoh had ordered the killing of the baby Hebrew boys. And now there would be justice by the killing of the baby Egyptian boys. In chapter 3, God had declared to Moses that he would bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And now God makes good on that promise that the Israelites leave Egypt. In chapter 3, God had also promised, or, sorry, declared to Pharaoh that he would refuse to listen, and yet the Israelites would plunder the Egyptians by taking their gold and jewelry. And now in chapters 11 and 12, we read about how the Israelites did that very thing. They asked their neighbors for gold and silver, and the Egyptians freely gave it to them. And we're told that the Israelites plundered the Egyptians. In chapter 4, God had sent Moses to Pharaoh with the message that Israel was God's firstborn son. And if Pharaoh did not let him go, he would kill Pharaoh's firstborn son. And now God makes good on his ultimatum that he kills Pharaoh's firstborn son. Pharaoh at the very beginning, when he heard about Moses' request, had said, Who is the Lord? And throughout all of the plagues, God has said, I'm doing this so that you will know that I am the Lord. And now Pharaoh will finally say, go take your people and your livestock and worship the Lord. Well, have you ever said that you would do something and then didn't do it? Have you ever made a commitment to someone and then not followed through? God is not like that. The 10th plague confirms for us that God is true to his word and he will have no rivals. He claims the title of undefeated champion. You see, Pharaoh wants to be God, but he makes a bad God. He wants to control the people, and yet he controls them with whips, with an iron fist. God actually controls all things, and yet he invites and he calls his people to participate with him in, as his agents. Pharaoh, he has no compassion, no mercy, no uh, no love for the people whom he rules. And yet God, he hears the cries of his people. He sees the situation. He acts in faithfulness and love to save. Pharaoh is hard-hearted. God is tender-hearted. Pharaoh, 
is faithless. God is faithful. This is the God of the book of the Exodus. This is the God that, God, that the Exodus is written for us to know and to remember. You see, a major theme of the book of Exodus is the way that God reveals himself. From the appearing to Moses in the fiery bush, to the promises to the Israelites, from his mighty acts of salvation, to the declaration of his laws, the God of Israel is, an, uh, is a God who wants to be known, and not just by one nation, he's, he needs to be known by all, because he is the one true living God, the God of all the earth. God wants us to know and to remember that he is God, and that is what he does in the climactic turning point of the Passover. He creates a moment that will not be forgotten. And so as we've talked about the history of the Passover, we've seen that the key movement of this moment is that it's the beginning of the climax of God's showdown with Pharaoh. And yet as we've just swept over the big story of the Exodus, we've missed some of the key symbols of the Passover. And, but they're the ones, they're the symbols that are actually going to be essential to the story of how the Israelites are going to remember this moment. And so now we have to move from history to the memorial of the Passover. You might have noticed that in the beginning of chapter 12, God says, you are going to get a new public holiday. You are going to remember this moment by celebrating this holiday every single year from now on. And as all good public holidays go, it's celebrated with a big meal. And so this is how the meal goes. The first thing is that God says this meal is called the Passover. And the Passover is, is a name for the animal that was sacrificed, the Passover lamb. He says, take a lamb. It has to be fit for sacrifice. It's a year old. It's unblemished. That means it doesn't have a disease. It's not maimed or anything like that. It's a male animal. It's a sheep or a goat. And you must all take one for every single household within the families of Israel. Every household is to set aside this lamb, and on the right day, you kill it at the right time at twilight. And he says to the people in the Exodus, in, the, in Egypt, take the blood of that lamb, and collect it, and start painting it on the doorframe of your house. Paint it on one side, paint it on the other side, paint it on the top of the doorframe. And he says, this blood is a sign for me. When I see the blood, when I come through every house in Egypt and strike down all of the firstborn in every, uh, in every house, I will see the blood and I will not go into that house. I will pass over that house and that house will be protected. And so every year from then on, they were going to repeat that very thing. They would take a lamb, they would slaughter it, they would celebrate the Passover by roasting the lamb and eating the lamb. But there's another aspect to the meal, and that's the bread. And he says, every year, you are, it, he, uh, he gives the name, this is the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. It's another name for the same festival. He says, for a whole week, you need to clear out your house of leaven. Uh, in our day, we would say yeast, you know, the rising agent in bread. In their day, it's probably a sourdough starter. He says, get rid of your sourdough starter. And he says, the bread that you bake for that week is all going to be unleavened. It's going to be a flatbread or like a damper. It doesn't have any rising agent in it. 
And we're told that the reason why where the, they had to do that year by year is because in the, uh, in the Exodus, in their, in their escape from Egypt, everything happened very, very quickly. In fact, he tells the people, when you eat, you have to eat as if you're running late for class, but you're really, really hungry. So you have to eat, but you have, like, you have to do it as if you're about to run out the door, right? So your belt is tucked in, your sandals on your, on your feet, your staff is in your hand. Eat it in haste, he says. And the reason why is because that very night, because the Lord came through in, at midnight and struck down all the people, uh, all the firstborn of Egypt at midnight, uh, the Egyptians, they knew straight away that they woke up in the middle of the night there was a great wailing. Pharaoh wasn't even, uh, didn't even wait until morning when he summoned Moses and Aaron. He said, take your people and go. And so they had to leave so quickly that they had dough in their kneading bowls that hadn't had time to rise. And so when they traveled to Sukkot, the next location that they were in, they baked their bread without any rising agent in it. And so they, they ate flatbread and they remember that by eating flatbread every uh, every year. And finally, uh, there's, as well as the celebration of that, that particular public holiday every single year, God gives them a third instruction. And he says, consecrate to me every firstborn. So that means that every animal, all of the livestock that they had, if there was a sheep that was born, the first sheep that was born, there was a male, they were to sacrifice it to the Lord. Every firstborn son that they had, as a baby boy that they had, they would sacrifice, not the boy, but they would sacrifice a lamb in its place. And they would redeem it that way. Uh, and, uh, and he says it's because God has consecrated all of the firstborn, uh, protected them from judgment. Now see, the other thing that the story really does is it really emphasizes how much it's, it's important to remember this moment. You might notice if you read through for yourself, we won't do it right now, but he says uh, three different times, you have to tell your children about what's going on, the reason why these things are happening. There's an assumption that every generation they'll have questions about why do you do this? Why do you do this? And just in the same way as we could ask about the different elements of an, an Anzac Day service, why do you lay the reeds? Why do you play the last trumpet, uh, the la uh, what was it called? The last post. Um, uh, every element of the Passover has an element of the story associated with it. Uh, it keeps saying, this is the sacrifice of the pa Lord's Passover. When he passed over the houses of Israel, but struck down the Egyptians. You should say, we do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn of the land of Egypt. And that's why I sacrificed to the Lord all of the males who first opened the womb, but the firstborn of my sons I redeem. You see, this story was to be retold again and again, and they were to be remembered. Twice we're told that these memorial instructions are to be like a writing on your hand, as if, you know, this, the thing that you don't want to, to forget, you write it on your hand so you remember, or it's like, something that you place right between your eyes on your forehead. The idea is that it's right there. It's unforgettable. It's always in front of you. And each time we're told it's because that with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us up out of Egypt. This is the thing that they must remember, their great salvation. You see, the thing is, we're a forgetful people. We are a forgetful people. Someone asks me, 
what did you do on the weekend? And I, half the time, I cannot even remember. My small group leader says, oh, do you remember what we covered last week? And I'm scratching my head there for five minutes trying to remember what happened last week. But what's so powerful about an institutionalized ritual like the Passover, just like the story of Gallipoli, which must be retold again and again when we celebrate Anzac Day, the history of the Passover was remembered as it was retold year after year, generation after generation. That memory is there to protect us. Even we say, lest we forget. The saying goes that those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. In the case of the Passover, to not remember their great salvation would be an utter failure of the Passover to produce any lasting change in the people. To forget what a great salvation the Lord had won for Israel would be a profound lack of gratefulness and a kind of hard-heartedness that only belonged to Pharaoh. Remembering also forms our identity. Our history, the way that we tell our history and our story, informs who we think we are. In Australia, we sometimes have this debate. Are we a nation of convicts who have found freedom in a sunburnt country? Or are we a people who live in the shadow of the massacre of the First Nations of this land? The way that we remember our history shapes who we think we are. It's the same for the people of Israel. Their identity is formed by the fact that they were slaves and yet now they are free. And for Israel to remember was also to worship. You see, Passover was a salvation-shaped service. In the sacrifice of a lamb every year, in the cleansing of each house of leaven, in the asking of questions and the answering with this story, Israel learned its worship liturgy from its salvation history. They bound themselves in this in this service to the story of a faithful God, a compassionate God, a mighty God, a saving God. And you see, only the Israelites were to, to celebrate this feast, this story, this Passover. And yet if a foreigner wanted to join themselves to, to the people of Israel, if they got circumcised to show that they belonged to the God of Israel, to the people of Israel, then the Israel story would become their story as well. The story of the Passover, of coming out of Egypt, would become theirs to own for themselves as well. They could own that history. And so I'm asking you today, what is it that defines your story? What defines your history? Because for some of us, we'd like to just think, history doesn't matter. It might as well be a blank void. You came from nowhere, you're going nowhere. All that matters is the present. And if that's who you are, if, that's, if you're a person without any history, then it only makes sense that worship for you would just be defined by what makes sense to you in each present moment, whatever feels right right now. For some of us, our history, we'd like to say, is defined by oppression, by slavery in Egypt, so to speak by injustice, by cruelty. We're victims, and therefore our worship is defined by our brokenness. Perhaps your worship is defined by a bitterness, an anger, or a sadness. And yet, for some of us, we would be able to say that where our history is ultimately most defined by the fact that we are saved. 
that we have been saved by God's grace and God's power. And if that is the case, that you were a slave, but now you're free, you were lost, but now you're found, then your worship will be defined by profound thankfulness, gratefulness for what has happened. It's defined by confidence in the God who has saved you, in his goodness and his patience and kindness. You'll be full of thankfulness, even if things are bad, because you know that things are not as bad as they could have been. And even when things are really bad, you can bear it because you know that you have a God who can bring good out of bad things. The memorial of the Passover was built in from the beginning so that people would remember their story, to remember that there are saved people belonging to God, and that would shape the way that they worship. We've talked about the history of the Passover. We've talked about the memorial of the Passover, but we can't stop there. Because the ultimate meaning of the Passover does not actually come from the book of Exodus. And we can tell that actually even from the story of the Exodus. Because the Exodus of the people of Israel, from the, of the people from Egypt, was not the end of the story. It was a mighty moment, but it was just the beginning. God had a breakthrough moment with Pharaoh, but it wasn't the last time that Pharaoh would harden his heart. And actually, it wasn't the solution to Israel's, all of Israel's problems. Because if you know the story of the history of Israel, this is how it goes. Almost as soon as they're saved out of the hands of the Egyptians, they start forgetting the God who saved them. They start to complain. They start to live lives that are ungodly, unholy. Instead of being the light to the nations that they should have been in the promised land, they live these lives that are much more like the nations than apart from the nations. It's really no surprise that in the story of the people of Israel, they get overrun in the end by the Assyrians and then by the Babylonians. They end up back in captivity. And the prophets of Israel say, there must be a new exodus. There must be a new Passover. There needs to be a new moment of God's salvation. Well, almost 1,500 years after the first Passover, Jesus of Nazareth was celebrating the, past, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread with his disciples in Jerusalem. At the, in the last meal that he ate before he died, Jesus took the ritual of the Passover and he totally transformed it to be about himself. Uh, you might know the story because it's very familiar to many of us. He took the bread, he gave thanks for it, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body given for you. And he took the cup of wine. He gave thanks for it. He gave it to his disciples saying, take this, all of you, and drink it. This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And Luke records that Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus was taking the Passover ritual this, this celebration that was meant to remind us year after year of God's great salvation moment in history. And he says, do this now, not as a memorial of that Passover, but in remembrance of me, of what I'm about to do. Now you see in the Passover, a lamb had to be sacrificed. Why? It was because it was a substitute. 
It took the place of the firstborn son. The blood on the doorframe said, death has already come to this household. The blood, the life of the firstborn son has already been paid for. Therefore, judgment must not come into that house. And for the same reason, when God said all of the firstborn were to be consecrated to God, it wasn't the firstborn sons who were sacrificed, an animal was sacrificed in their place. They were redeemed by the sacrifice of an animal. And the same lesson was already learned by Abraham in the binding of Isaac. It wasn't Isaac that was sacrificed. It was the the ram that took his place. And so now the gospel writers make it abundantly clear that when Jesus celebrates his final Passover meal, he wants his disciples to understand that he is their Passover lamb. He is the unblemished, innocent victim. He is the one whose blood will cover the doorway. He is the one who will fall under the judgment of God so that we don't have to. He is the one who will die in our place. And after this, the disciples will be defined by this moment, this new moment in salvation history. They will remember this moment through a meal of remembrance. Their worship will be shaped by the ultimate sacrifice, not one that has to be reenacted every year, but that will be shaped by the once-for-all sacrifice that Jesus made. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The old Passover was a reminder of God's great salvation, but it was also a continual reminder, along with the rest of Israel's sacrifices, that Israel didn't just need salvation from Egypt. Israel needed salvation from Israel. Because we are all slaves to our own waywardness, our own turning away from God. We are all more like Egypt, more like Pharaoh, than we are like God's design for his own people. Because we get ahead on the hardship and injustice done to others. We build our lives on ungodly pursuits and fail to honor the true God. And we harden our hearts like Pharaoh and yet, like him, have the audacity to say, Bless me also. Did you hear that in the reading today? We need a Passover not just to save us from foreign nations, but to save us from ourselves, to bring the forgiveness of sins, and to free us from the ultimate judgment of God. Friends, have you joined yourself to the story of God's salvation? Have you taken a hold of the gift of the forgiveness of sins? Have you allowed God's grace to shape you, your identity, your worship, your character? Can I invite you to do that today? God's promise is that if you are willing to follow Jesus, then his story becomes your story. His, the, the, the salvation history of Jesus Christ can belong to you. Because he died, you can have new life. And all it takes to get started is to pray to God, to ask him for forgiveness in Jesus' name. And he promises that he will give it. We'd love to help you to do that. And so come and talk to me. Come and talk to your Christian friend. Uh, We'd love to help you to do that anytime. And if you have joined yourself to this story, well, then one, one of the things that is a great joy of being part of a local church is that we get to celebrate in exactly the way that Jesus taught us. We remember through the habit of remembering through repetition uh, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. 
Well, your church might do it every week, or it might do it every month, or however often you do it, every time we go through the ritual of breaking the bread and sharing the cup, we retell the story of how Jesus died for us, our Passover lamb, in our place. We do it in remembrance. It's a habit of worship that shapes our hope through the remembering of our history. It's given to us so that we'd always be humble and thankful. That's the way that we ought to to worship. And finally, uh, let me finish with just one more thing from the New Testament. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5 verses 7 and 8 say this, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, Christ is our Passover lamb and he's been sacrificed. And yet the way that he applies it, he says, you have to get rid of the old leaven. He's not talking about bread anymore, not literal bread. He's talking about, he's using a metaphor that has been picked up in New Testament times that leaven is a way of talking about sin. It's, the, it's talking about the way that sin creeps into us and, uh, and uh, can ruin our, our whole lives. He says, get rid of the old leaven, not clearing our houses out of yeast, but the inner person of malice and evil. And instead, let's celebrate the festival with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The only right response to being saved by grace is to be transformed by that grace. I'm going to pray that that might be the case for us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that with a mighty hand and outstretched arm, you saved the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. You demonstrated your compassion and remembrance, your power and your divinity. And we recognize that in Christ, we have a greater sacrifice and a greater salvation. Draw us into your love that we may be changed by your grace, lest we forget and forsake the one who would save us. Help us to join ourselves to your great story and to always remember what you have done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.